I want to give a shout out and a thank you to Warren and Sarah Grace Davey and to our partners at Northwest Collegiate Ministries. They're doing an awesome, incredible job on campus. Some of our students are likely uh, here this morning, and we're so thankful for that. But I want to mention one thing in particular. When there began to be rumors about ESPN Game Day coming to town, Warren reached out and said, hey, what do you think about us giving away like coffee and burritos the morning of game day? And I said, go for it. And um, of course, it ended up happening. And uh, ESPN College Game Day was in town yesterday. And Warren and maybe even some of you were up bright and early prepping and serving uh, coffee and breakfast burritos. And um, but I just got to say, I am so proud of all of you for being generous uh, Harvest, you help make this happen in terms of uh, supplies and a variety of other things. So thank you. And uh, Warren, Sarah Grace, thank you for your leadership at the University of Oregon. It's such an important uh, part of who we are as a church. And uh, thanks for loving on campus. Thanks for showing and sharing the gospel. Don't forget that next Sunday is your next chance to be baptized. Uh, I want to make sure you know if you've recently given your life to Christ, if you've never been baptized, we would love to talk with you about baptism. And next Sunday, we have adults and kids scheduled to be baptized, and we would love for you to participate and go public with your faith in Jesus. And so that said, if you have questions, if there's anything I can do, uh, if you just want to sign up, uh, please reach out to me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. I would love to hear from you and get you scheduled. Months ago, I reached out to a good friend, Dr. Randy Adams, asking him to speak to us today. Randy leads uh, our mission partners here in the Pacific Northwest. We partner with the Northwest Baptist Convention, and Randy leads those efforts. It's so important that we continue to participate with other churches across Washington, Oregon, and parts of northern Idaho. I'm thankful for Randy's leadership. I'm thankful for his encouragement, and, and frankly, he's a good friend. And I know he's going to bless you today as he shares a little bit. You might remember that back in September, I mentioned when we did the back-to-school bash, right? right? The back-to-school bash, we were able to uh, reach about 500 or so people, you know, young families, people with lots of kids. We, you guys did a great job of just loving on them all that day. Well, I probably mentioned back then, I'm certain I did, but the Northwest Baptist Convention offered us a grant that was partly responsible and helpful for making that back-to-school bash happen. And so not only do we partner with them in sending mission dollars that get used uh, really around the world and certainly all across the Pacific Northwest, we also benefit from that partnership as they support our efforts to reach the university and our efforts to reach Eugene Springfield and the rest of the Southern Willamette Valley. So I've asked Randy to share a little bit more. Um, uh, he may tell you a little bit of his story, but more than that, I've asked him to share a little bit more uh, about our efforts with other churches here in the Northwest Baptist Convention and our missional efforts in church planning across the Pacific Northwest. And so I want to ask you to just do me a big favor, and since I'm not here, please welcome uh, warmly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Please welcome Dr. Randy Adams as he comes and shares God's word with us. Mission.
asking me questions about how I'm doing and all of that. And I'm thinking, Brian, that's what I'm supposed to be doing that for you. Part of my job is to encourage pastors, but uh, he is a great, great guy. And we are good friends, as he said. It's wonderful to be with you. By the way, Rachel and your worship team, that was fantastic. Great song selection, too. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful worship songs. So thank you for that. Um, my wife, Paula, is with me. And we are our office, by the way, for the Northwest Baptist Conventions in Vancouver, Washington. We live just north of there in a little town of Ridgefield. But as Brian said, we have churches all across the Northwest, over 500 churches. And you'd be interested. One of the things we do, we do a lot of leadership training. Your pastor's a part of that. Um, evangelism is a big focus of ours. If, if a church does anything evangelistically, especially training, we pay for that because of what you provide through, through the mission gifts that you provide in other churches. We're able to do that for all of our churches. We also do a lot of church planning. One of the things that you might be interested in is we have 27 different worship languages on Sunday morning by far more than any other network of churches in the Northwest. The reason for that is because of the way we partner together, we have missionaries who know how to reach cross-culturally and across language groups. So for example, uh, anyone want to guess what is the second most common language among our 524 churches? Second to English. Anybody have an idea? Spanish is an excellent guess. Spanish is actually, what, what was that? You know, we have a lot of uh, Tagala or Tagala, those Philippine churches. We have several of those. Spanish is right now third. It will soon become second. But right now, Korean. We have a lot of Korean, about 40 Korean language churches, probably 30 or maybe now more than 30 Spanish language. The next most common, you probably wouldn't guess, but it's the third most common language in Oregon behind Spanish, Russian. That's right, Russian and Ukrainian. We have 15 Russian and Ukrainian churches. Most of those worship in Russian, though a lot of the Russian language churches are majority Ukrainian people. One of our pastors told me, he said, yes, at church we speak Russian, at home we speak Ukrainian, in business we speak English. They are a very, very impressive uh, group of people. And uh, by the way, in our annual meeting, which is just in three weeks, uh, I think Brian will be there, maybe others from your church, but we're going to focus on our Russian-Ukrainian churches on Monday night because, as you know, this has been a really, really hard year. You have helped them, by the way, um, by providing funds and other ways to, to, to take care of a lot of the refugees that have come here. We've also had a lot of our pastors and leaders go to Poland, especially but also in Ukraine, helping people there. But uh, one lady I just spoke with about two weeks ago has 18 in her house. Now, she has a big house, nine bedrooms, <laughs> but she has 18 refugees in her house. She's a Russian lady. Her dad was in prison in, in Soviet Union for four years for preaching Jesus. That's the kind of people these people are. When I ask the Russian people, why did you come to the United States? They say freedom. And 90%, it's religious liberty. They love our country. But anyway, Russian, the next most common language is Vietnamese. We have about a dozen Vietnamese churches, which, of course, all came after the war in 75. A lot of Vietnamese uh, who came as refugees. Uh, many of them have come to faith in Christ. Some already were, and we have about a dozen churches. But we also have Tagala and Japanese and Chinese and, and a lot of Burmese, by the way, the country of Myanmar. A lot of people from Myanmar here, and we have a, a number of churches there as well. So you're a part of all of that is what I want to say. Last year, you helped us start 24 new churches, two of which were Swahili, by the way. Those are both in the Seattle area, but five different languages just in the last year among our new church starts. So I just 
just want to say thank you for that. We do a lot of disaster relief. I don't know if anyone here is a disaster relief volunteer, but we've got 700 volunteers. Whenever there's a disaster anywhere in the country, Northwesterners usually are a part of ashing out homes or mudding out flooded homes or any number of other things, feeding units, chaplains, things like that. So thank you for that as well. I could tell you far, far more. And if you have any questions before I leave today, uh, please feel free to ask those questions. My wife and I, we have two sons. I grew up in Montana, by the way. Someone noted I have a little bit of a kind of a Texas accent because I went to seminary in Texas and we stayed down there for a few decades, actually, about 30 years. But I went to college in Montana, grew up there, and my wife is from Bakersfield, California. But um, we have two boys, and one of our boys is in medical school at Washington University in St. Louis. He's actually doing an MDiv, uh, uh, MD PhD. He's a medical researcher. He's absolutely unbelievably brilliant. Our other son's are very sharp too. He's a CPA in Portland. They're members of our church. We're part of a church plant in Ridgefield. And uh, but great kids. And one of the things we did with our kids growing up, we wanted them to get a good education, of course, but we wanted them to have a heart for the Lord. We wanted them to, to uh, know how to share Jesus with others, both locally and globally. And so we took them on a lot of mission trips also. One of the places we went, probably the furthest, most radical, was Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, my, my, Paula would take a boy, I'd take a boy, we'd swap boys every day, and we would go visit those who had requested a copy of the books of Moses. There was an ad placed in the paper by our missionary there, do you want the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses? And we would take that and then share Christ using uh, the books of Moses. And the very first guy my youngest son and I were with was a man named Amit, and after sharing, and Amit could speak good English, and after sharing with him for about an hour who Jesus is and, and urging upon him the need to have Christ as Savior, he said this. He said, if I do what you want me to do, I might get killed, which was a real possibility in Bangladesh. And so we talked about that. And basically, the question we tried to answer for him is, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? And then I had my then 13-year-old son, the medical student, pray for him. And I wish you could have heard that boy's prayer. I wish I could have recorded it. But that helped shape his heart as we planted the gospel in on me. But that question, is Jesus worth it? I was talking to one of our youth pastors just a couple of months ago, and uh, that story came to my mind as I was talking to him because he was discussing young people today and the issues that our young people are facing. In fact, uh, Julie was telling me when I asked her, what is the big issue that you're dealing with in your children and youth? And she said, identity. Their identity in Christ, their identity as to who they really are. And that's what this pastor said as well, this youth pastor. Basically, he said, he said, our kids are dealing with issues of transgenderism and homosexuality, and if not in themselves and their, in their friends. Uh, one guy told me last week, a pastor, he said, his wife is a first grade teacher, and she said last year she had a boy in her class, and now this year in the second grade, he's a girl. And he's going by a different name and all of that. And one day he uses one restroom, another day he uses another second grader. Now, the issue isn't only that second grader, as desperate as that situation is, it's all of the other kids in the school. 
It's the teachers, of course, but it's all of the other children. And as, as I was talking to this youth pastor and even Julie this morning and others, the question came to my mind that we had with the man in Bangladesh. Is Jesus worth it? Because you see, our kids are going to be faced with things that I never was and you never were probably when you grew up. It never thought, I never thought that, that, that if, I, if, if, I, if I was a public school teacher or if, if I worked for some big company or if I worked in a government job that, that my faith might conflict with what they were making me do and believe. But that's exactly where our kids are today. And the front lines of gospel work, the front lines of what it means to serve Jesus and know Jesus and live a biblical life, it's not in the pulpit. We're, we're not the ones on the front line. It's business people. It's police officers. It's public school teachers. And it's your children and your grandchildren. They have to ask the question, is losing my friend worth it? My job, my career, my political career? These are the questions people are asking. Is, is, is Jesus worth losing what I will if I publicly align myself with him? Now, we're not the first to ask that question. That question was asked by the very first followers of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's why I want to take you this morning to the Gospel of Luke the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 through verse 19. Really, the focal verses, the last few verses, but to get a, a feel for the context of Luke 21, I want to start with verse 5. And this is Jesus with his disciples just days before the cross, right toward the end of his life. He'd been spending now about three years with these men. And Jesus is preparing them for his soon death and then departure back to heaven when they would be left physically alone. Physically, he would no longer be present. And he was preparing them for that day. In verse 5 of Luke chapter 21, it says, As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, Jesus said, These things that you see... The days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. 
Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now, this passage is the most debated passage in the Gospels by scholars because Jesus is dealing, it's called the Olivet Discourse. You may be familiar with that term. Jesus was on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, teaching his disciples, and he was talking about events that would happen in just 40 years from that day. This is about 30 A.D. In 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The Roman government came in and just, just destroyed everything, and including the temple, and the temple's never been rebuilt since that day. So Jesus is talking about that, but he's also talking about the end of time and what will happen before the end comes. And there's debate in the specifics of the text about, is he, is he now talking about the end of times or is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 40 years? And it's not always clear. What is clear, however, is that Jesus said, uh, you will, some of you, be put to death. You will be persecuted because of my name. Those of you who align yourself with me, life is not always going to be easy. In fact, sometimes it will be extremely difficult and you will suffer for following me. And the great discipleship question of the, of the day was, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth suffering for? Is he worth dying for? That question has never changed. The great discipleship question when I was talking to the man in Bangladesh was, is Jesus worth it? And I would suggest to you that is the question that you need to help your children answer today. If they're going to have the backbone and the strength to live life faithful to the Lord, they're going to have to know Jesus is worth it. He's worth what I might lose. He's worth what I might suffer. Now, Jesus said you'll be persecuted, and there are several things that he mentions regarding persecution in this passage. One, it's extremely personal. You know, most persecution, whether it happened in China or Pakistan, where my parents were missionaries, by the way, for a number of years, Pakistan, Iran, they were in Tehran, uh, Tehran on 9-11. I mean, uh, much of the persecution over there, it's not governmental always. It's often family. It's especially true in Islamic countries. And that's why Jesus said it, it'll be parents or brothers or friends or close relatives I was preaching in Corvallis not long ago, different message, but there was a student, a college student at Oregon State who came up to me after the sermon, and he said, uh, he said I, I, I accepted Jesus last year, and when I went home at Christmas, I told my parents what I had done, and they kicked me out of the house at Christmas. Thankfully, he said, I had a friend and his family, and they let me come stay with them. 
But that is when persecution becomes really, really personal and difficult. And the question that young man had to answer was, is Jesus worth it? Persecution, Jesus says, is often personal. He also said it provides an opportunity to bear witness. In fact, he said, I'll even help you bear witness. Don't determine in advance what you will do or say, because I will give you words and wisdom that no one can refute. If you walk with me and listen for my voice, I'll help you bear up and bear witness to those who are persecuting you. And then the climactic statement of the entire passage, no, no matter what the world might bring, know this, when you know me, not a hair of your head will perish. Apparently, it is the will of God that in this life, we live with a sense of uncertainty. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what is going to happen with our children. If you're a gardener, you know if you want tomatoes in the summer, you've got to plant them in the spring and cultivate them and feed them and all of that. We know that if we want kids who stand strong for Jesus, stand against the enemy, we have to build character and values and truth into their life when they're young so that when the day of persecution and suffering comes, they'll know that Jesus is worth it. So we live with this sense of uncertainty now because we also have certainty. The certainty that we have is in the promises of God. The certainty that we have is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, our faith is a historical faith. We, we believe that Jesus is an actual, real person, testified to by hundreds of people that not only saw him die on the cross, but raised from the dead. And these men and women gave their own lives in the years that followed because of the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus and his promise that he would return again one day and that he would be with us every day until that day. As Christians, we believe that history is moving forward to a final climactic day. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, when the trumpet will blast and the angel will shout and the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and there we will be with the Lord forever. And the certainty of that coming day enables us to live in the uncertainty of these days. Now, it's always been true that followers of God and of Jesus have had to face uncertainty. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is when Jonathan, King Saul's son, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, they were supposed to be fighting the Philistines, but the, the Jewish uh, people and King Saul wasn't taking the fight to the Philistines. And so Jonathan, with his armor bearer, saw 20 Philistines up on the hill. And he sort of flew out, threw out the fleece as to whether God wanted him to attack the 20 or not. And he determined God wanted him to attack, just him and his armor bearer, uphill against 20 Philistines. And his concluding statement before the attack was this, perhaps the Lord will do something. 
Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And so they attacked, and they routed those Philistines. In fact, the victory was so great, those two against the 20, that it rallied all of the other Israelites to join the fight, and they had a tremendous victory that day. But if you remember the full story of Jonathan, you might remember that Jonathan eventually died in a battle against the Philistines, together with his dad Saul, the king, and others of his brothers. On that day, he gained a victory, but there was a day yet to come in which the victory would not be his. It, it's, it's the way life is. Queen Esther. <laughs> Remember Queen Esther became the queen of, of the king, the wife of the king, and there was an evil man named Haman. She was a Jewish person. The king was not. And Haman decided he was going to annihilate, completely annihilate the Jews from the face of the earth. And when Queen Esther was told about this from her uncle Mordecai, he said, you need to go talk to the king. You need, you need to expose this plot and save your people. But Esther knew if you go talk to the king uninvited, he can kill you. It's illegal to do that. It's capital punishment. But she determined that she had better do it. And her concluding statement before she went to the king was, if I perish, I perish. She asked Mordecai and Jewish people to pray for her and fast. And she prayed and fasted, preparing herself to approach the king. And thankfully, she was well received. And the plot was discovered. And that was 2,500 years ago. And the Jewish people still celebrate that day 2,500 years later every year. <laughs> you look through the Old Testament, you look through the New Testament, and what you discover is there has always been a risk, there has always been something uncertain about following God and about doing the right thing and living by faith and not by sight. There's always been something uncertain about that. But what believers have determined from the earliest days is that God is worth it, that Jesus is worth it. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament regarding that is the Apostle Paul, who's on his way to Jerusalem. And his disciples, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, this is in Acts chapter 21, didn't want him to go. And then there was, a, because they thought he might get killed, there was a prophet named Agabus who came to Paul, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the owner of this belt, the Holy Spirit tells me that the owner of this belt will be arrested and handed over to the Gentiles if he goes to Jerusalem. And so when the prophet told Paul that, well, Luke thought, you don't want to get arrested, you know, and the others thought, that, that's not a good thing. So they tried to talk Paul out of going. And Paul's response was, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to suffer, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. It's interesting because Agabus heard from the Holy Spirit. He was a true prophet. He wasn't a false prophet. 
And when Paul got to Jerusalem, he was arrested. He was handed over to the Gentiles. How if you, however, if you remember, that was part of God's plan. Because when he was kept in prison in Caesarea, he testified to the two Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and to the Jewish king Agrippa. And then he appealed to Caesar, and they put him on a ship and sent him to Rome. But on the way to Rome, the ship got stuck in a storm, caught in a storm, and the ship was destroyed. But everyone on the ship survived. They washed up on shore of Malta, the Isle of Malta, and Paul was warming himself before a fire on the island. And, and when he was, a, a viper came out of the fire and bit him. And the people who saw that thought, this man must be a murderer. And God's going to get him. But then he was miraculously healed. And they thought, this man must be God himself. Paul said, no, I'm not God, but I know God. And a tremendous revival broke out on the island. Many came to faith in Christ. When finally they found another ship and Paul got to Rome, by the way, you remember who was the emperor in Rome at the time? It was Nero. Nero, who'd already murdered his own mother and his wife, who would one day illuminate his garden with Christians as human candles, one of the most evil people ever to rule, and yet Paul testified before Nero. And when Paul wrote to the Philippian church from Rome, he brought greetings from the saints in Caesar's household. Now, Nero did not come to faith, but apparently some in the emperor's household did come to faith because of Paul's faithfulness and his certainty that Jesus is worth it. Whatever life might bring, Jesus is worth it. As I said, that is, I think, the great discipleship question of our time. Forty years ago, I'm in my 40th year of ministry right now. This is my 40th year. When I went to college, I went to be an engineer, Butte, Montana. Got a degree in engineering. Through collegiate ministry, was called to to preach, and so I went to Texas to go to seminary. It, it never occurred to me, however, that if I was an engineer with a big company or, or an accountant, my son is an accountant with Ernst & Young, his first week on the job, his boss, who's a homosexual person, held a, a, a meeting, a voluntary meeting, for all of the employees to come and learn how to support the LGBTQ community first week on the job, and he decided not to go. But he wondered when he didn't go, what might happen now? Well, thankfully, he's had a great career there thus far. He wasn't punished in any way that we know. But, but I, I, I tell you that because that's the kind of thing people are facing. You, your kids and your grandkids, this is the world they're inheriting. It's not the world that I came into when I entered the workforce, and probably not when you did. But it is the world your children are entering, and your grandchildren. I was reading about a woman named Ruth Friesen, who was a missionary kid in India. Erwin McManus tells a story in one of his books. And she said uh, she was saved and baptized, by the way, if you haven't been baptized, I would really <laughs> encourage you to consider. Baptism is the public act of following Jesus. It's basically your way to say, yes, Jesus is worth it, and I'm going to take a public stand for him before my family, my friends, and the world. So if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do that. That's exciting next Sunday. 
Well, Ruth Friesen was baptized in one of the rivers in India. And when she was, she was eight years old, she said uh, the church gathered around and they were clapping and they were shouting and, and it was like she thought a celebration. They're celebrating my baptism. She said only later did I learn that no, they were keeping the crocodiles away. <laughs> she said it does something to your faith when you begin your walk with Jesus by taking a risk. Well, there is a risk. And yet, what Jesus said was, when you follow me, when you know me, not a hair of your head will be lost. Whatever might happen, it will be all right. And you'll be all right. I'll conclude with one of my favorite stories a hero who's now with the Lord, Richard Wormbrand. Some of you may be familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. It's a great ministry to suffering believers around the world. It was founded by Richard Wormbrand. Richard and his wife, Sabina, were, he was a pastor in Romania when Nicolae Ceausescu and those communist thugs took over Romania. And when they did, they brought all of the Christian leaders together in one great hall, about 4,000 people, and they basically demanded that each of them declare their loyalty to this new communist system. And one by one, they were doing just that. And Sabina Wormbrand turned to her husband, they were there, and she said, they are spitting in the face of Jesus. Go wipe the spit from his face. And Wormbrand said, you will lose your husband if I do. And she said, I do not want a coward for a husband. So Wormbrand stood up, stepped out, said, there is no king but Jesus. I bend my knee to none but him. And for his crime, he spent about a dozen years in solitary confinement. His wife spent two years in prison. They had a nine-year-old son who friends took care of while she was in prison. Finally, his case became so well-known, they just exiled him from the country. Eventually, they made their way to the United States, and they founded Voice of the Martyrs. Richard Wormbrand was once teaching children what it means to follow Jesus, about 12-year-old children. And on the last day of class, he took them not to the church, but to the city zoo. And he took them to the lion's cage at the city zoo and said, your fathers in the faith were fed to beasts like these. You will not be fed to lions, but you will deal with men who can be meaner than lions. Knowing this, which of you will follow Jesus. And Wormbrand said, every boy and girl with tears running down their face said, I will. A person like that is someone we respect, someone we follow. Wormbrand is now with the Lord. Probably most of those children are still now grown and have families of their own and maybe grandparents. I suspect that those children, probably down to the very last one, 
are still following Jesus. Still living by faith and not by sight. What about you? What about your kids? I want to pray for us and pray for you. And especially, I want to pray in two ways. If there's anyone here who has not yet given your heart and your life to the Lord, I want to encourage you to do so. And to answer that question personally for yourself, is Jesus worth it? By saying, yes, he's worth it. Jesus can take the simplest of people, the humblest of souls, and he can do something with us. He can give us a strength in the face of an onslaught of resistance and give us the strength to stand. And he can do that for you. And if you've not yet given your heart and life to Jesus, know that when he died on the cross, he died to provide a cleansing from your sin. Not only forgiveness, but his shed blood on that cross washes away our sin so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the worst in us. He sees the holiness of his own son, the cleanness of his own son in us. And then Jesus was raised from the dead, testified to by Peter, James, and John, and 500 at one time, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15. They saw him, and it changed their life, and it changed all of history. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Bible says he was raised not only for you, but you too, when you come to faith in him, you're raised with Christ. Meaning you overcome death and sin and the grave with Jesus. So I want to pray for you. And then there may be decisions you need to make. There may be other decisions like, I need to talk to my kids. <laughs> I need to talk to my grandkids. I need to help them know Jesus is worth it. I need to have that certainty in my own heart that Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, anyone and everyone here who does not yet know you as Savior, may today be the day they say yes to Jesus. And if that be you, you can follow with me in this simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, just pray that either out loud or to yourself. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn away from my sin and I trust you, Jesus. Come into my life and save my soul. In Jesus' name I pray. Father, for the rest of us, help each of us to know that Jesus is worth it. And that goodness truly does follow us. Goodness, the goodness of your goodness, the goodness of God truly does rush and run after us. All the days of my life, the psalmist said, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, help us to know that in the hardship of the world, we have your goodness. In the uncertainty of life, we have the certainty of what you've done for us. Help us to know that, Father. Help us to know that Jesus is worth it. In Jesus' name we pray.